0: Welcome to the Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Max Russo, class of 2020. Today, I'm excited to talk with class of 2013's resident physician at Monroe Carroll Jr. Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, Dr. Lindsay Pedraza, formerly Lindsay Zaya. Lindsay will share with us how at seven years old, witnessing how a steady hand of a neurologist saved her mother against improbable odds and thus sparked a lifetime of fascination and service in medicine. Joining us from the class of 2013, Dr. Lindsay Pedraza, formerly Lindsay Zaya. Lindsay, tell us what you do.
1: Hey, I'm so excited to be here. Um, I am currently a pediatrics resident in my first year um, at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital down in Nashville, Tennessee.
0: So Lindsay, how did you begin your curiosity with medicine? Was this something that began at Wego or was it something that kind of you began uh, leaning towards once you started uh, college?
1: That's a good question. Um, I've actually known that I wanted to be a doctor since I was seven. Um, My mom, when I was in first grade, had a brain aneurysm and it was kind of like a freak accident. My mom always had migraines. Um, She was just a very headache person. But there was one day where she came home with the worst headache of her life, um, ended up going to the hospital where they gave her a 96% chance of dying. Um, But they put her in a helicopter and they sent her to Loyola's hospital and the doctors there saved her life and it was kind of deemed like a medical miracle that she survived that and has had no side effects and is living a normal healthy life to this day and so at that young age i you know i was only 7 but i remember just being fascinated by um not only the medicine itself how we could be given such crazy statistics of my mom not making it and her actually making it but I just remember her uh, neurosurgeon that she had um, was so hopeful and was such a fearless leader in guiding my family through the process um, during such a scary time. And I just remember looking up to him thinking how cool that this man is not only so smart and so skilled in what he does, but he also has that humanistic side um, that helped my family emotionally get through such a difficult scary, scary time. Um, and so he is somebody that I continue to look up to. I actually got to do a shadowing program at that hospital um, when I was in college over the summer. And I got to shadow him and actually watched him coil an aneurysm, just like he did for my mom. So that like was full circle. Um, and since then, I really just never lost my interest in medicine.
0: That must have been incredibly special to shadow the man who was instrumental in turning that 96% in uh, uh, around and finding that 4% survival. How, what an incredible uh, moment to have been. Uh, how How many weeks was your shadowing of this particular doctor?
1: So for him, I actually wasn't even scheduled to shadow him. It was kind of like a rotational experience. And it was so strange. One day I was in his same um, unit shadowing somebody else and he was actually a doctor at Loyola and this shadowing experience was at Central DuPage Hospital in Winfield and he actually went from Loyola to CDH and was now working there and someone I had told my story to the administrators who ran this program and they almost like a surprise said hey he's actually working this day Do do you be interested in shadowing him and so I met him for, you know, I guess the second time, cause I already had met him once when I was much, much younger, but it was awesome because a bunch of his nurses from Loyola actually followed him to CDH as well. And they remembered my mom and our family's story. And so, um, it was definitely a pivotal experience and to see how far I had come and to be in that moment with him, watching him, you know, save someone else's life was just remarkable. So I was very thankful for that experience.
0: So when when you when you went to Loyola, what was some of your um, pre med work like? Uh, what were some of those classes uh, like when you started?
1: Yeah, well, Loyola is um, a very strong pre med school. A lot of kids uh, go to Loyola for the pre med program, and it was intense. Um, I was a biology major, and so I think everybody has the idea in their mind that when you're a pre-med, you take all the same classes, and that's true uh, for the most part. We all want to take our core science classes like biology, chemistry, um, organic chemistry especially, but you can really be any major um, that you want and still be pre-med, so I had friends who were literature majors, I had friends who were journalism majors, and they still were considered pre-med, so... The classes that I took being a biology major um, were more geared towards the heavy sciences. So everyone takes like biology, chemistry 101, organic chemistry. But I felt like my um, third and fourth years were the more formative aspects of my college career and really were geared more towards a career in medicine. I think the best class I ever took was immunology and that class was super intense. It was known to be one of the hardest courses you could take, um, and it was one of the one of the classes I think that really taught me how to be a student. And I had been through, you know, organic chemistry, which is known to be one of the hardest as well, and it weeds a lot of people out. But immunology was like, wow, this is actually so cool. This is gonna, you know, pertain to my career in the future. It's gonna help me treat patients, but it also taught me to learn for the sake of gaining more knowledge instead of learning to get through a test. Um, and so that really piqued my interest in immunology and um, a different immunodeficiencies that I see in my patients. And I still carry forward a lot of that knowledge that I had in that class um, to my career today. It's pretty awesome.
0: Do you remember what in particular it was within immunology that kind of created that spark? That Because that, you said it was like sometimes you learn because you have to learn to just satisfy that particular requisite grade, but this, it seemed like there was something in that that really created that intrinsic intellectual curiosity in immunology. Do you remember what it was that kind of made the switch?
1: Yeah, I think for me, immunology was more, instead of memorizing facts, it felt like a puzzle and i had to understand how each cell worked in order to understand the bigger picture and understand a disease process and so if i knew what a cell, where a cell came from and where it was produced in the body and what for example cytokines it produced and what response that has on the body if i knew those details it helped me understand an entire disease and what a person with that disease might present like and so I felt like for me, it was the first time that I could really see my basic science knowledge pertaining to a real life clinical scenario. And that's when I started to put those pieces together to say, hey, this knowledge that I'm gaining now will actually help me treat a human being one day. And I thought that was pretty cool.
0: <laughs> that is, it's so interesting. I've, I've, I've come across that metaphor so many times with these interviews with, uh, with alumni that there's such a satisfaction when they see what they do as a puzzle to be solved and they under, once they are, are able to see how the grooves of the pieces fit together, there's such an incredible satisfaction I, I, I just I love <laughs> love when that happens when you hear that uh, that metaphor show up over and over again. Now just just as a, a nice kind of like study hack, what were some of the things that were like how did you? What are like really good study habits? Because I think that, you know, anyone would want to know when you're into something as intense, but also something that you love, which is uh, this particular uh, coursework. What was probably the the one type of really good study habit that really transcends?
1: That's a really good question. I was actually um, in a meeting um, within my residency program over the lunchtime hour today about how... Um, your learning style changes as you progress through school and now my career. And so, you know, in high school and in college, I was very much into being somebody who took notes. I was a visual learner. I liked to see PowerPoints and write everything down. I was the person who had like six notebooks in my backpack at all times and had back problems from that because I just really felt like I learned best by drawing things out and taking notes. And it's interesting because I feel like Um, that is what made me be successful in my college studies. But as I progressed into medical school, I felt like my study habits definitely changed because it's such a greater volume of material in such a shorter period of time that you're expected to digest and understand and be able to apply and regurgitate on a test. You know, we had tests all the time, quizzes all the time in medical school, um, and so I I also took notes, but I feel like I became more of an auditory learner in hearing things. I started actually listening to podcasts to study, um, and there's a lot of great ones out there for board prep um, in medical school, but... I do think it's interesting kind of how your your learning style and study style changes. And now as a resident, and now I'm a doctor, I don't have time to sit down and read and take notes because there's just so many patients to see. There's so much to do. And you're working a 15, 16-hour day, six days a week. Um, and so there's no time or energy to do that. And so now my learning style is really learning on the job, hands-on, doing things, learning from my patients, talking through cases. Um, And that's a point that I didn't think that I'd ever get to be able to get to to learn effectively. But here I am learning on the job, which is totally different than kind of how I was back in high school or college.
0: One more follow up question to that. Your confidence in your memory has to be so consistent? Like, how do you know that like, yeah, I got this? Like, when, when do you know that it, it really has become, for lack of a better word, muscle memory of how your actual memory works when it comes to knowing various different terminology and the connections between all of these incredible systems that are converging when you have to kind of understand the problem at hand? How, what, when do you get that confidence in your memory to be able to use that and apply it in a, in a scenario?
1: Yeah, that's that's another good question. I think that's something that takes practice and takes time. I feel like when I took tests in college, high school, medical school, repetition was key. Um, Doing flashcards, I was a big, I did flashcards on my computer. Repetition, repetition, repetition was huge in solidifying my knowledge. But now I've found in clinical practice that the volume, which in a sense is also repetition. The more patients I see with one disease, um, the more times I run into the same problem. Like when a patient with bronchiolitis may or may not need oxygen, it's a, it's a huge call that can really dictate plan of care and length of hospital stay. And so um, we saw a huge surge of bronchiolitis um, over the summer, actually, right when I started. I started on July 1st. Um, And so seeing that peak, you know, same thing with COVID, seeing all these patients who come in over and over, um, it is like muscle memory, but I think repetition really is the most important driver of that. You can read a book or you can read an article once, um, but seeing the same thing over and over, I think has helped me solidify concepts and um, plan of care and management and just kind of overall pathology and details about that. So yeah, repetition is definitely key.
0: Lindsay, you said that there was some really kind of formative years towards the latter end of your time at Loyola, but you were also did some volunteer work where I I believe it took you out of the country. I was wondering how that also kind of really kind of kept the gears going towards your career in medicine.
1: Yeah. So anybody who knows me knows that I'm a huge homebody. I'm not very adventurous. I'm somebody who um, likes to go home and uh, visit my parents a lot even if I, you know, I've lived out of the state now for many years, but I'm definitely a homebody type. And so, um, one of my good friends who was two years older in college said, Hey, I'm leading this global brigade to Nicaragua. You should come. And I was like, Nicaragua, me, like you got the wrong person, but she's like, it's going to be so fun. It's a medical brigade. We're going to go, we're going to bring supplies. We're going to open up a clinic and work there for two weeks. And so, for whatever reason, I it just stuck with me, and I felt this like nagging voice in the back of my head, like this is your chance. You need to step out of your comfort zone and do something different. Um, and I've been out of the country with my parents. We've gone to Europe. I've been to Mexico. But this would be me by myself in a third world country. You know, I didn't really know the group super well that I went with, so it really was a challenge for me to talk myself into doing it. But I decided to take a leap of faith and. Um, that was one of the most formative experiences that I've had in my entire life. Um, it was so interesting to be there and witness what medicine looks like in a different country. And I had done shadowing here and we all kind of have this idea of what medicine is. But until you see what medicine is in a different country, I think you can never truly have a deep appreciation for the resources and everything that we, we have here. Um, I remember when we went to Nicaragua, the plane landed and I had thought that my phone company, I tried to set up an international phone plan and it didn't go through. And I didn't find out that until my plane hit the ground in Nicaragua and I turned my phone on and it wouldn't activate. So I was really off the grid. I had no way to talk to my parents really for two weeks unless I borrowed somebody else's phone. But you know, looking back, it was so cool to be disconnected and just really get my hands dirty and talk with these people in this mountain village, um, about, you know, what their day-to-day life looks like. And we, at the end of our trip, um, sat down with all the people on our trip, who of course I got super close with. And then the leader of our brigade, who was somebody from Nicaragua, who was our sponsor. And, you know, I just remember she had said, you know, you have the unique opportunity to do whatever you want with your lives. Like most of you want to be doctors or nurses or dentists or something in the healthcare field. And these people, you know, this, they could dream about that, but it might never, the chances are it would never happen for them. And so, uh, she said, your greatest stress in life, which of course, you know, was being a pre-med and passing tests and exams and all the things your greatest stress is someone else's greatest dream. And that really put things into perspective for me. I thought that was so remarkable because, you know, when you're pre-med, you're worried about the MCAT and you're worried about interviewing for med school. Am I going to get in? Because it's hard to get in. But hearing her say that was like, wow, you know, how lucky am I that my greatest stress is taking a test to get into medical school. That's pretty cool. Um, And so that trip definitely was formative. I learned a lot of good life lessons on that trip. And I got super close with the people that I went with. And there's really, unless you you go and step outside your comfort zone, I don't think um, you could truly wrap your head around the things that you could learn from people, you know, in other places of the world from different cultures than you.
0: When did you start the process of gearing up for then med school? Uh, as you were winding down um, your your undergrad, when when does when do you begin to start laying the groundwork for that and the preparations for all the pre exams to get in?
1: Yeah, so I feel like I started probably even in high school. I think something a career in medicine is something that you just keep building upon and there's never really a good time to start. It's just something that you have to always have in the back of your mind. Um, So like in high school, I volunteered a lot, which carried forward to college. And so it's really important for any college student who's, you know, wanting to get into medical school to start working on Broadening their CV. And so getting into medical school now is competitive. So it's not just about the good grades. It's not just about the good MCAT score, which is obviously um, a very important part. It's also about immersing yourself in activities that will help um, round you out as a person. I think there's been a big culture shift in the field of medicine where medical schools want to recruit people who have worked on other aspects of their life, not just being the best scientist or the biggest genius. It's can you sit down with a family who just got, you know, a a life-changing diagnosis for one of their loved ones? Can you sit down with them and talk them through what that looks like? Can you take the extra time to, you know, talk through something with your patient? Can you empathize with somebody? Do you have compassion? And so some of the things that I did in college um, involved you know, visiting with, for example, I did this thing called Loyola for Chicago. And so we would go to um, a group home for um, older women with mental disabilities. And once a week, we would go and do arts and crafts and play games. And so, yes, that wasn't like a medical shadowing experience. It wasn't a volunteer role in a hospital setting. But working with those women and stepping outside of my comfort zone to learn how to relate to people different than me taught me important lessons about how to be a good doctor for my patients. And so I think there's just this huge culture shift um, to wanting to recruit people who care about things outside of learning the knowledge. Do you, you know, help a neighbor in need? Do you volunteer for Habitat for Humanity? Do you tutor somebody in your class? Um, Those are all things that I think are equally, if not more important than your grades and your test scores these days
0: so you graduate from Loyola and then how did you then uh, t- talk to me about like how you how you set up for the type of tests and how did you find your particular med school?
1: Yeah, that's, that's another good question. So I um, obviously knew I wanted to go to med school and I thought I was going to stay close because of course I'm a homebody, but um, I had actually talked to Rob Windish, who's also another WeGo go alum. Um, and he went to Creighton for med school And I had heard that he loved it. So I talked to him on the phone early on in the application process. And I said, hey, I'm applying to med school. I have never been to Omaha, but I've heard Creighton is great. Um, Obviously, I went to Loyola for college, which is a Jesuit school. And Creighton is also a Jesuit school. Um, And so I really appreciated the Jesuit education that I got because I felt like there was just a deeper layer of um, values that I wouldn't have gotten um, if I didn't go to a school like that, and so he talked to me on the phone and said, "Yeah, I love it here. Here's what they look for. This is the kind of student that fits in well here." And just hearing how much he loved it was so inspiring to me. And so I interviewed all over the place, and of course that was before COVID, so I could actually interview in person on like for residency, but you know, I flew to DC, I flew to Omaha, I flew all over the country, but something about Creighton um, just really stuck with me. I felt like um, the people there were just genuinely good people who cared about developing, you know, their students as whole people, which I feel like has been a common thing that I've talked about now is just, I wanted to be a whole person. I didn't want to be just a doctor. I wanted to still have time to develop other aspects of Uh, my personal life and that was something that Creighton really emphasized. And so um, I studied really hard for the MCAT, like all pre-meds do. I took that my junior year and then senior year is really focused on applications and interviews. And so I interviewed in the fall. Creighton was actually my first interview um, and I just fell in love with it right away. And that was actually my first acceptance too. So Um, I was super excited and uh, moved out to Omaha right after graduating from college Um, or from, yeah, from college. So that was, that was an adventure.
0: Now, when you, when you move to, to Creighton, to Omaha and you begin your, your, your studies, did you feel that you were, your study habits were forged enough in pre-med that it became, uh, that it was just, easier, not easier, but like that you were able to absorb that new uh, challenge that much easier? Or was it really a significant uptick in the intensity of the uh, of the schooling at that point?
1: It was definitely an uptick. They say the first year of medical school is like drinking water from a fire hose. And that <laughs> is totally true. And I will say, I did feel like, so I went straight through to med school. A lot of people these days are taking a gap year or two in between to either travel or work or get some sort of research experience. Um, But I knew uh, personally that, you know, I just wanted to go straight through. I knew that if I took a break, it'd be very hard for me to learn how to study and go back to being a student. And so I went straight through and I think that helped. Um, because I know that some other people said it was so hard after being in the corporate world or whatever else that they did, it was so hard to kind of readjust and learn how to sit down and, and study again. I will say that that immunology class really helped me in terms of Um, digesting a large volume of material. And that's when I actually started recording the lectures. I would record and do voice recordings on my phone um, during immunology class because he would just talk so fast and there was so much material that I couldn't even write fast enough. And so that's something that transitioned well into medical school. At least at Creighton, what they do is they record the lectures. And so I would actually watch the lectures back on like two times speed a couple of times while I was working out. cooking dinner. And so that's where I kind of transitioned from being, you know, primarily visual kinesthetic learner to auditory learner. Um, But it's definitely, I think no matter what kind of preparation you have prior to med school, it's definitely a totally different world. And you just, you have to adjust. And then there's also not only the lecture portion, but at least at our school, we had um, our anatomy lab. So with cadavers the first year as well. And so that's a lot of hands-on skills that you've obviously never had before. Um, and so it is, it's is—it's a lot of learning. It's a big, big adjustment for anybody, I
0: think. I just want to go back to one more thing about your study habits. It's like, just, did you, did you intuit your migration from the visual learning to, uh, to auditory or, or was that something you just kind of like, Oh, or, or was it by suggestion? Someone said, you really need to think about your study habits. Maybe you need to try it that way. I'm just curious to know how you made that kind of migration over to this, to this other, um, style of maybe absorbing all the content.
1: Yeah, I think it just happened naturally. I think what's challenging about medical school is that you sit there, you know, full time, you know, eight to four in lectures all day. And so, you know, that's a lot to write down. Um, And so I found that if I was writing everything down, I was writing it, but I wasn't, learning it and there wasn't enough time for me to go back over the whole day 8 hours of lecture after I got home to like process it on paper and so and I also found like found that I had no time to work out to cook dinner to do other things if I was constantly writing and so I started while I was working out I started listening to the lectures or when I'm cooking I started listening to the lectures. And I found that it actually stuck better with me for whatever reason. And so I stuck with that going forward. Instead of writing things down, I really just repeated things. I talked through things. I listened to it again. You know, if I felt like I needed to draw out some sort of process or diagram or something, I would do that. Um, but it wasn't so much about writing down everything on the slides anymore. It was more about um, processing that auditory information. And that's something that even now, um, I feel like I'm better when some somebody explains something to me, or if I listen back, listen to one of our lectures that we have now, even in residency, if I listen to it back again, I, I pick up on things that I didn't pick up on the first time. Um, and, and yeah, I think it was just kind of a natural process for me.
0: How did you begin to gravitate towards pediatrics? Where, I mean, so you have a a spectrum of of options, or what, how, and how did you then begin to find your particular specialty?
1: Yeah, so everyone does, you know, the same core um, rotations and core classes in medical school, and then fourth year of med school is really where you get to um, choose your own rotation schedule and kind of gear it more towards your interest and in what you want to do. The tough part is that in medical school by fourth year, you're already applying to residency. And so it makes it difficult for somebody who is super undecided because by the time you really get to choose to do the things that you want to do, it's, it's kind of too late, unfortunately. Um, I was lucky enough in that um, I had a volunteer role at Lurie Children's Hospital in downtown Chicago in college. And I was super undecided about where in medicine I wanted to be. I thought maybe neurosurgery or interventional radiology because of what my mom had gone through. Um, And I remember I was generally looking for some sort of medical volunteering experience. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know where I'd be able to land a role. It's kind of hard in downtown Chicago to figure that out. But um, I came across a volunteer tutoring position. At Laurie Children's Hospital, and I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna try it, and that was where I completely fell in love with pediatrics. I would tutor um, after classes. I would go downtown for a couple hours on Monday nights, and um, I was part of the school program. So there was a retired CPS teacher who actually ran this program and she would coordinate with all of the patients' teachers. If they were in the hospital for a long time, they would get their homework sent over so that they could complete in the hospital and not fall really far behind in school. And I thought that was so cool. Um, and a lot of the volunteers, uh, volunteer tutors were older. And so they were i super excited that they had a college uh, biology major coming because they had a ton of high school uh, kids who needed help with their chemistry homework. And so I really had my own patient panel that I would tutor every Monday night. And it was so cool to just be at the bedside. And yeah, I didn't have any medical really knowledge or experience, but being in that clinical setting and sitting with patients doing their homework and sitting with their families and getting to know them. Was so cool. I became fascinated with um, pediatric care and the disease processes that my patients had. Even though I wasn't, you know, in the medical realm of their care, um, I just I loved it. And that hospital was is just beautiful. And um, I kind of never looked back. I know, you know, medical school you kind of dip your toes in everything and you do all the core rotations. So I still had to do a surgery rotation, OB/GYN rotation. all the things, but I felt like, um, pediatrics was really my calling. And I I haven't really looked back since here. I am now a pediatric resident.
0: Immunology wasn't, wasn't going to bring you back into it. Cause I always like wonder, like, was there one that was almost going to bring you back, but it seems like you were, uh, set on, uh, on pediatrics uh, for sure. Something
1: else really, really stuck out to me. I just, I'm, I'm definitely a a kid person. I remember on my, um, I did a surgery rotation and I did a week of vascular surgery in medical school. And I actually had to cut off an old diabetic man's toe, his great big toe in the operating room with a saw, with a bone saw. And I said, nope, this is not for me. I will stick to my pediatrics. So
0: that has to be the separation of yourself and the, what you can then provide care for the uh, actual patient, um, it, it's a it's a very kind of tricky line there because you know that that proximity to that sense of what you're doing to the other person's body has to be really tough to separate uh, with with that and that was so you're saying that 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 was. A little bit too, too intense?
1: Yes, I am not um, a surgically oriented person by any means. um, But it is tough. I mean, you go from learning about things in in books and in PowerPoints to day one of med school, here's your cadaver, pull off the sheet, like here's your first patient. Um, And so it is kind of Um, something that you have to be able to stomach and cadavers are hard in themselves just because it's a, it's a dead body laying there and somebody donated their body for your learning. And so to wrap your mind around the fact that these are now real people, your decisions, you know, impact somebody else's, body um, is a huge responsibility. And um, I'm still humbled by that every day that people trust their lives um, to me to take care of. And I think Creighton did a really great job of preserving the humanity in our cadavers. They told us their names. We heard their stories. And at the end of our year with this um, cadaver, we would actually write up a report and the families would come. Um, We would kind of sit with the families and express what we learned. And we had a whole um, ceremony for them at Creighton's um, Church, St. John's on campus. And it was really beautiful to see all of these um, families come in who, whose loved ones donated their body to science, and so that's another reason why I just I loved my Creighton experience, and I think um, there's such beauty in in preserving the the humanity and and the love and compassion for for all patients, you know, dead or alive.
0: Well, wow, that was brilliantly said, Lindsay. I, I, can you maybe um, describe how do you then fan out the possibilities for residency what's that process like
1: yeah so super crazy because while this is you know i'm in med school i'm taking my boards and then actually i was on week two of my core pediatric pediatrics rotation third year of med school and i waited all year for this it was mid-march i'm like finally i made it through surgery i made it through ob i made it through every rotation and this was like my second to last one and it was pediatrics and i was so excited and then March 17th comes and they call us and say, there's this new virus called COVID and we can't have medical students here anymore. You're going to be learning from home until future notice. And I was yeah. devastated. I mean, I yeah. I remember we went home and it, it was just such a strange feeling to be you know, a year away from graduation, and you're sent home because you're a learner, you're not really there to help, you're an extra body in the room. Um, So it was strange. And this was all during the time where we're gearing up to apply to residency. And so we were pulled off all um, in-person services until um, May. And so we we took boards and, you know, it was very strange. Like, do we need students here? Do we want students here? Are they allowed in the room? Are they not allowed in the room? And it was hard because, you know, imagine you're going to be given a medical degree in a year and you don't know when you're going to be allowed back full time and and when people will feel comfortable teaching you in person. And, and that's a scary, scary feeling. And so we carried on and we took our boards and then, They And of course, that was a nightmare because boards are in person. And so um, you have to go sit in a room, standardized testing center, like any other major test. And so those were getting canceled and rescheduled. And I actually had to drive all the way to Lincoln to get a test date. So that was really stressful. Um, And then they pulled the in-person part of our boards out completely because of COVID, because that part is only offered in major cities. And so while all this is going on, they say they announced, hey, just so you know, um, we're actually not offering in-person interviews for residency this year. That's (laughs) devastating, because you are about to sign a contract, you know, for pediatrics, it's three years of residency for neurosurgery, it's seven years. And so you're moving yourself, you're moving your family, your spouses have to get another job, you have to get a house or an apartment and to never step foot in a city like that you could be signing that many years away to it is challenging to say the least. And so that's a gamble. Um, our class, I feel like had to be super, it was a lesson in resilience, that's for sure. Um, and so again, I was somebody who always thought I'm going to return to Chicago, I'm dead set on it. And, um, I sat down with my, one of my mentors who still continues to be a mentor at Creighton. He was my pediatrics clerkship director. Um, his name is Dr. John Schmidt and he did, he's a neonatologist at Creighton. Um, and he actually did his NICU fellowship at Vanderbilt. And he said, Hey, I know your dad said, I'm going back to Chicago, but you have to check out Vanderbilt. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like I've never been to Nashville. There's no way like Nashville, Tennessee, me, I hate country music. Like no, it's, it's not going to work out. But for residency, you apply pretty broad. It's kind of like applying to medical school. Um, but with our class, because nobody was traveling, and because there was no expenses, really, like travel expenses associated with interviewing people applied to more programs than ever before, which really um, put programs in a hard spot, because they had all these applicants to choose from now. And it was a really scary that had never happened before so I interviewed all over the country um, you know and I, I loved a lot of the programs that I interviewed at but Vanderbilt really just felt like home even over Zoom it was kind of strange how how you get to know a program over Zoom but um, you know then you make a it's kind of weird because you make a very long match list so I interviewed at all the programs that you know gave me an interview and then you rank them um, one to however many that you want to rank and then you submit it to an online program and then you sit and wait until match day which is mid-march so the programs uh, rank all the applicants that they interviewed one through however many and then it runs through an algorithm in mid-march we have match day across the whole country And usually it's in person and you open an envelope with everybody. But of course, everything was on Zoom, which was actually really fun because I got to be with all of my family members. Um, Oh, yeah. The the envelope uh, or I got the email. I got an email. Um and we all were gathering on Zoom, and so they called up my name and I got to open my email and announce that I had matched up my number one choice, which was Vanderbilt
0: um, fantastic yeah,
1: it's a really cool wow. it's stressful, but it's it's a really cool experience that I feel like you don't get outside of medicine.
0: So tell me about then um the hospital that you're at now. You said you've been there since July of, of this year, and um what's what what have been some of the uh, challenges, and what have been some of the things that you think that you've really kind of begin to really find your 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 footing and really begin to kind of uh, hone your craft as a as a physician
1: yeah so July first is the first day for all um intern doctors, and so it's known to be a very kind of scary day because that's when all of these you know fourth year medical students are on on the wards and and they are holding the pagers and doing all the things and so Um, I ended up starting on the wards, which, um, is one of the more, I guess, intimidating rotations that you do as a resident because you're, um, it's a, it's a resident run service and you have an attending, but the volumes were, were high and you're you're holding the pager and getting buzzed, you know, every five minutes. And so I really felt like I hit the ground running. Um, I came into residency, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do within pediatrics, um, and so far now it's February and I've done three blocks of wards, which is hospital medicine, which is general pediatrics, but in the inpatient setting. So um, if a kid is sick enough to get admitted to the hospital, um, we are the doctors that take care of them on a, on a general service. Um, I love hospital medicine. I think that's probably what I'll end up doing with my career um, with a focus probably in medical education and that's kind of a big umbrella, but um, I've always been interested in teaching and um, I have a very particular interest in medical student education. Um, I was the first person in my family to go into medicine and so I felt like it was really difficult to kind of find my way in medicine and know, you know what to do to get to that point um, and, to, and to be successful. Um, because it's hard if you don't have somebody guiding you, and so I, I'm very passionate about mentorship and medical student education to not only you know get people excited about medicine and their career and residency and pediatrics specifically. But um, I, I'm really I'm interested in taking kind of my career in that direction, which is really um, it goes hand in hand with hospital medicine because that's where you have all the medical students rotating through on their clerkships. So. Um, I have loved, my hospital is phenomenal. The, the greatest challenges I think, um, have been just the volumes that we're seeing in this pandemic. Um, you know, when I started in July, we were having a huge surge of bronchiolitis, which is typically a winter virus, but we were seeing kids getting super sick, um, coming into the hospital to be admitted and sometimes even in the ICU. And so to be a brand new intern, you know, just learning how to order Tylenol on the computer to having these kids who are super sick, you know, they're under your care and, and it's it's your patient. So it was definitely a steep learning curve, but I think it's been phenomenal. You know, just the leadership that I work under. My co-residents are awesome. I mean, they recruited an awesome class virtually, which I think is pretty impressive. Um, so I have a great group of friends and Nashville itself is awesome. I'm loving it here. I think I want to stay here forever. So I feel very lucky. There have been challenges. You know, I work 80 hours a week, most weeks, six days a week. Um, but I, I love my job every single day.
0: You always hear about how... Intense residency is. You're, you're saying that 80 hours a week. How do they, how is there anything that you, you feel that has been something that has been um, helpful in terms of finding balance, kind of a self care, uh, where you're able to, um, you know, be able to absorb the intensity uh, of these 80 hour weeks?
1: Yeah, I think. Uh, I'm a social person. So, the best thing has been um, the people of my program and the time that we spend both inside of work and outside of work. Um, You know, it's, I think it's different when you're a resident because you spend most of your time at the hospital. You know, when I'm working 15, 16 hour days, I spend more time with my coworkers than I do my own husband. And so, that can be challenging, especially when you know, most days that I have off like today's a Monday, I have a Monday off, my husband's at work, I haven't had a weekend off or weekend day off in months. Um, So there's a lot of things that can drain you. But I think finding little things to fill your cup, like having really good friends at work that you sit and eat lunch with, or you know, the days that I do have off doing something really fun, Um, I'm really into music. And so, you know, last time I was off, we went to the listening room, my husband and I and uh, got to listen to some cool singer songwriters. So I've learned to enjoy, I think the little things, um, because I have (laughs) less free time, but it, it does when you have less time, you enjoy little things like picking up a book, you know, to read on your day off or just having time to sit, um, with your loved ones and have a good conversation. So I think it's, it's definitely been challenging, but I have been able to find, uh, ways to fill my cup when I don't have that much time to spare.
0: You know we started this conversation and you you know your journey was sparked by you know this doctor that was able to uh, provide the type of confidence in your family how have you been able to um, kind of use that type of Um, strength and calm and really, you know, bedside manner that you hear so much that uh, doctors need to have, how much of that has kind of made its way into your practice so far?
1: Yeah, that's been, I think the hardest part as an intern is that you have to learn so much in such a short period of time, while your pager is going off, while you have 15 notes to write, And so there's a lot of studies and articles about how um, intern doctors spend more time in front of a computer than with their patients. And that's absolutely true. Um, You're the person that's really the front line. So you're pre-rounding, you know, my typical day means, you know, getting to work at six, I get the sign, 6am, I get the sign out from the overnight resident. And then I have to go see all of my patients before rounds. We have conference in the morning, so we have like a lecture for residents and then you know, after conference, you're expected to be able to round, know every detail in all of your patients. And when you have high volumes, that's, that's tough. And so it's easy to get kind of lost in the numbers and lost in the science and knowing all the diseases. And um, it can be definitely challenging. I think uh, last month I had, I consider like a breakthrough month where I felt like my third time around on the wards, I finally felt like a doctor. We had one We we had a really difficult patient um, on our team who had had a three-month-long hospitalization and had been in and out of the ICU several times. And she has a lot of different complex disease processes going on. And I actually, you know, I'm on a team with several residents. And I shied away from this patient at first because I didn't think that I had you know the knowledge base or skill set to be able to take care of her, and the person who was taking care of her actually had a day off, and so I was challenged to take her on. And um, I found that, you know, even though I didn't understand all of her complex disease processes at the beginning, this was the first patient where I felt like getting to know her family was way more important than knowing the nitty gritty details of what was going on. Because in the big picture, this is a patient. Um, who palliative care will be very important for and um, you know kind of goals of care conversations are are important for and me taking the time to spend an extra couple minutes in her room with her family who was of a different culture, um, I think helped build that therapeutic relationship and that family had notoriously been known to be one of the most challenging families to work with in the whole hospital they Um, just, they, they know what they feel is best for their daughter. And sometimes that would conflict with what the team felt was best for their daughter. And, um, there were times, you know, I'm not, I'm not a crier by any means, but there was one morning where we just felt lost. We didn't know what the next best step was for our patient. And and the parents were growing frustrated because of course, after three months of kind of tinkering around with things and seeing her get sicker um it was frustrating and it was heartbreaking and um that morning the mom expressed her frustrations to me and actually wanted to take her child out of the hospital and leave and go to a different hospital and i just she was tearful and i just broke down too because you know it's one thing to come in and i'm the doctor and i'm going to have the answers but when you don't have those answers and you have this this sick patient and her parents who so this is all you know this is all they have this is their whole world is their daughter it's frustrating. And so we cried together in the room for, for a long time that morning. And, um, I think being vulnerable with them and admitting that I didn't know what to do next and admitting that this was difficult for me helped, you know, build rapport and helped me be a better doctor for her. Um, at the end of the month, um, That family actually asked me to become their daughter's primary care pediatrician. I do have a clinic of my own as a resident, and they asked me to be her pediatrician, pediatrician, which was such an honor. Um, And by no means was I the smartest person in the room. By no means did I have all the answers to all of her complex issues that she had. But the fact that you know, I cried with the family and showed that I, I cared and that I was willing to admit that I didn't know what to do next. I think went a long way, and I think there's power in saying I don't know, and there's power in being vulnerable and um, letting patients and their stories affect you.
0: As you are approaching your your patients, is, is there any one particular system that is the one that? you are more so fascinated by, like, are you really interested in respiratory, circulatory, the nervous system, which is there one that's like, that you'd love kind of maybe teasing out the puzzle of that uh, particular uh, system as it maybe it, it winds its way to uh, your, your patients?
1: Yeah. It's funny that you asked that because I always thought I would subspecialize, meaning maybe I would be a pediatric immunologist, maybe I would be a pediatric cardiologist and pick one organ system to be the expert at. And even if you ask some of my mentors in um, medical school, you know, what they thought I would do, they would say subspecialize. I wrote my personal statement about how I wanted to subspecialize and be an expert in my field. Um, I was kind of obsessed with knowing everything about one thing, and I found that now you know, in in the hospital on my rotations, I am obsessed with a lot of different things and a lot of different organ systems. And so I think that's why I'm drawn to a career as a hospitalist because I don't have to give up any other organ systems. I see a lot of variety on my hospital medicine months. Um, I can have a patient with pneumonia. I can have a patient with viral gastro- gastroenteritis and dehydration. I can have a kiddo with preceptal cellulitis and their eye is swollen. I can have, you know, a really bad rash that we don't know the etiology of. And so I think having that variety, not only in disease processes, but ages, because of course we see different diseases in different age groups too, really to me is the biggest, the biggest, the biggest puzzle um, because there's such a variety and so many different things that could be going on. And so um, we'll see, but I think I have a hard time giving up any other (laughs) organ system. So I think I might be a generalist. We'll see.
0: Is there a, I have to ask as as an English teacher, like what's your favorite like metaphor that explains sometimes the body to you where like how you see the body behaves like a, or in the way of something.
1: Hmm. That's a good question. I would say a machine. Um, There are so many parts to a machine, and I find it fascinating that if one part doesn't work, um, it affects so many different parts that the whole machine can't operate. And so, um, you know, to give an example that I feel like a lot of people don't think of, um, is kind of from a mental health standpoint, which we also see on our teams, on our hospital medicine teams. Um, if the, you know, the brain speaking generally, if that's not working, what other organ systems can be affected. And so the, you know, if somebody feels depressed and, and they have, um, you know, feeling they have symptoms of depression or they have, something that prevents them from being active, how does that affect their weight? Which, How does that affect their blood pressure? And how does that affect their lipid levels? And so I think seeing how each system can go together so well um, is fascinating. But also it's fascinating how when one piece of the machine is, is broken or malfunctioning, how that actually does affect the rest of the machine as well. Um, it's, it's definitely a puzzle and it's, it's, I didn't appreciate how interconnected all the systems were until I started meeting a lot of my, my patients and working with them.
0: I, I, I always like asking that, that question about like, you know, how, what, how, how do you see this incredibly complex system, uh, and, and how it all works together. It's just so neat. Lindsay, what, what are some things that you read or that you would maybe advise, like maybe a student that is really wants to kind of begin the the process of, I think you use this term before, like dipping your toes into all things, a career in medicine, What what would be some of like the, the, Uh, the initial readings or movies, documentaries, podcasts that like could really kind of help um, give a a sense of of, uh, the commitment or really kind of build the enchantment of this career?
1: Yeah, I think there's probably a different good answer for every level of student. And so I think if you're a high school student and you're interested in a career in medicine, the best thing you could do is, and this is true for all levels, is reach out to somebody kind of either in medical school or somebody who's a doctor. I think early on, shadowing is so important. Um, You know, as a high schooler, you're kind of just, you know, getting your feet wet and seeing what kind of career paths might be interesting to you. And so um, shadowing a doctor Shadowing a nurse, shadowing a PA, um, shadowing a physical therapist. I actually worked in a physical therapy office in college. Um, anything you can do to kind of immerse yourself in a healthcare setting, I think, can be really helpful in guiding your your decision making. I also read a lot of um, books written by resident doctors, written by practicing attending doctors. When I was in high school and in college, to kind of read more about what their experience was like. And a lot of them are are difficult to read because they're, I don't want to say discouraging, but they're, you know, they try to give an accurate depiction of some of the really hard things you see and kind of what it's like to be a doctor who gives up a lot of things in your personal life to do this career. And so I think reading is important, but you have to um, take it with a grain of salt sometimes because a lot of it focuses on the negatives. Um, Shadowing, I think, is key. And that continues on in college. But the more you can network and kind of talk with people who are in it and doing it and ask what their experience is like and what day-to-day life looks like as a medical student or as a doctor, I think I think that's the most um important thing you can do. And I know um there's gotta be some good podcasts. I don't know any off the top of my head, but great podcasts about what it's like to be a resident doctor or what it's like to be a medical student. Uh, I think just learning from others and learning from others' experiences is is really formative and really helpful in making that decision for yourself.
0: Wow, um, Lindsay, you've been so generous uh, with your time this afternoon on your uh, on, on your intense uh, week of eighty hours that you gave us uh, and gave me an hour of your time to to share all of this. I'm just uh, I'm, I'm so uh, impressed and so happy that you have. Um, have uh, earned this uh, place where you are in your career. I was wondering if you could leave current Wildcats with some tips for success.
1: Yeah, I would say always follow your dreams, which sounds really corny, but I knew from an early age, this is what I want to do. And it was tough to get here. Don't get me wrong. Looking back, I, you know, I can't believe all the hoops I had to jump through all the tests. I had to take all the money I spent on all of these things. Um, but if you're passionate about something, don't let anybody or anything get in your way. Put in the hard work. Um, do all the things that you need to do because once you're you know, in your 20s and you're, you're doing your dream job, uh, it, it, there's no words to describe how grateful you will be to yourself that you put in the work to do what you really want to do in the future. Don't settle and always ask other people for help. If you are struggling, or you need the, uh, you need help carving the path to your own success, I think there's so much out there, and um, you know, don't sell yourself short. Work hard, play hard, and you'll you'll get to where you want to get to.
0: Perfect, Lindsay. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thanks for listening. Help spread the word about We Go Places podcast by sharing this episode with one other Wildcat. As always, find past and future episodes on Apple or Google Podcasts or any other platform. Just search WeGo Vox. That's WeGo V O X. You can also stay current by following us on Facebook at WeGo Places Podcast or on Twitter at WeGo Places.